Well, now that I'm an adult, I would like to go back and give my father the gift of sleep. He didn't sleep all that much when I was young. He was very much a night owl. But when he finally did go to bed, I have to confess that I was often to blame for getting him back up only a few minutes later. See, I grew up in a home that had been built in the 1860s. And lying in bed in the quiet of the night was like listening to a symphony of creaks, scrapes, and knocks. Not being a very brave child, and knowing the stories that circulated in our community about what had taken place in our home at other times in its history, it didn't take much noise, either real or imagined, to send me moving towards my bedroom door. Once I had reached my door, I took a glance in either direction down the hallway before hurling myself as quickly as I could across the hall and into my parents' bedroom. I would then gather my composure and say as calmly as I could, I think I heard something. My father would get out of bed, put on a robe, and do a sweep through the house, ultimately reassuring me that all was well and that I could go back to bed. I confess that my husband, Dave, too, has humored me on occasion. Getting up in the middle of the night to check out some noise I may or may not have actually heard. Or to try to convince me that the noise I am sure is the world's largest rodent running across the attic above our bedroom is, in fact, merely a tree limb scraping the roof. And I still have my doubts about that. But these experiences are precisely why it can be hard at times to trust our hearing. We know our ears can deceive us. We know our ears can play tricks on us. The Society of St. John the Evangelist is an Episcopal monastic community in Boston, and I subscribe to a daily devotional written by the brothers of the community. It's called, Brother, Give Us a Word. This past Friday's word was call. And the devotional was written by Brother James Kester. In his reflection, Brother Kester speaks of the difficulty in knowing whether what one hears is real or imagined, especially when it comes to hearing the call of God. He suggests that the problem comes from the way in which God calls us. And he writes, It always seems to be a whisper. It never seems to be a shout, or at least not for me. For whatever reason, God never seems to shout when trying to get my attention. God always uses his inside voice, as my mother used to call it. Jamie, she would say, use your inside voice. Whenever I shouted or spoke too loudly or cried out something, that's the voice that God always seems to use, at least with me, his inside voice. Shouting and calling and crying out and throwing people off their horses is great stuff. But that's not how I hear God. I hear God in a whisper, in a look, in a turn of the head, in a subtle expression on a face. That's how I hear God, not in shouts and cries and loud calls. To be honest, I'm not sure if the early disciples had it easier or harder than we have it today. Sure, they could actually hear Jesus when he called them. They didn't have to hear only with their heart. Instead, the pressure changes in the air actually made their way from Jesus' mouth to the disciples' eardrums. They were amplified by the bones of the middle ear and changed into electrical signals in the cochlea, signals that were then sent to the cerebral cortex to be deciphered by the brain. 
Simon, Andrew, James, and John actually heard in this very physical way Jesus say, follow me, right there in the flesh. And they were faced with a decision, leave everything and go with Jesus or keep the life they had. There wasn't the option of questioning whether or not they'd actually heard something. They heard. And what they heard was, follow me. Maybe in some ways, hearing with their ears actually made it harder for the early disciples. Because when we, 2,000 years later, hear with our heart, it's very easy to tell ourselves that we're mistaken, that we're just imagining things. And even if we do acknowledge that we hear Jesus calling us, it's easier for us now to take that call out of the realm of flesh and blood and make it an abstraction. And let me say a little about what I mean by that. In his book, Breathing Underwater, Richard Rohr talks about how this shift toward abstraction took place, how following Jesus became not about what we do physically in our lives day to day, but about what we believe in our heads and do mainly on Sunday. He writes that when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, a need arose to agree on what he calls transcendental truth claims. Is Jesus both divine and human? Was the virgin birth real? Will Jesus physically come back to earth one day? Rohr says that in the midst of all these concerns, Christians began to concentrate on how to worship Jesus as one united empire instead of following Jesus in any practical ways, even though Jesus never said, worship me, but often said, follow me. I think the early Christians had it right when they called themselves people of the way. A way involves one's whole life. It's not something you just believe. Instead, it's a manner of being. It confronts us in the here and now with the choice Jesus gives the disciples in today's gospel reading. Follow me or stay where you are. To be a people of the way, you have to tie up your shoelaces, stop clinging to the safety of things you know, and follow Jesus out into the streets among those who need good news, those who sit in darkness and who experience all kinds of sickness. But what we've done instead is to make Christianity about certain beliefs. And in the process, we've relegated the way to a second-tier characteristic of Christianity. We have made following Jesus an abstraction, something to think about instead of something we actually do. Now, I need to admit that what I'm saying here might seem at odds with our epistle reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Because in that passage, Paul implores those in the church at Corinth to be in agreement, to be of the same mind and the same purpose. But he's not asking them to have some intellectual agreement when it comes to their beliefs. The congregation at Corinth is divided by so many things. How the members worship, what leader they follow, their spiritual gifts, their socioeconomic classes... What they don't understand is that all these ways of identifying and sorting themselves out become obsolete in the power of the cross, in this body of the baptized. What they've forgotten is not some set of doctrines, but what it looks like to be part of a body that follows Jesus. They've forgotten the way. The truth is that there's nothing wrong with exploring our faith through study, 
There's nothing wrong with thinking about what we believe or with saying the Nicene Creed. Those are all very critical to our faith, and we need to do them. But we can't do those things accurately or faithfully outside of a life lived following the way of Jesus, outside of the actions that inform and shape our beliefs. That's partly why we as Episcopalians care so very much about liturgy. We know that what we do forms who we are and what we believe. Still, it is awfully tempting to live in our heads and not in our bodies. It often seems much safer to debate theological claims than it does to roll up our sleeves, embrace the grittiness of daily life, and wade into the diseases and sicknesses all around us like Jesus did. It is sometimes easier to try to define Jesus or talk about Jesus or even pray to Jesus than it is to answer the one request he makes of us, which is simply to follow him. So I want to end this sermon with a very simple suggestion. In the week ahead, listen carefully for the call of Jesus. Maybe not in the normal way we hear things, but in the pull on your heart, the desire that springs up in you from time to time, the compassion you have for someone else, and the beauty you find all around you. And then don't analyze that call to death making it into something that only lives in your head. Instead, get out of the boat, roll up your sleeves, put your hand to the plow without looking back, or in the language of 12-step programs, be where your hands are.